Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming streamlined state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area, following program produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. I am the legendary and rapidly aging due to stress and anxiety, Burl Bear, Mark C.G. Boyer, our fact-checker. And years ago, I believe it was like 2016 or something like that, or 2012, <laughs> maybe it was 1812, Carrie Drobin was our guest. Yes. Uh, she couldn't show up for the show because she got hit by a truck. <laughs> I remember. I knew you were going to race up again. You were probably worried I was doing that to you again. Anyway, I'm glad we connected. Uh, yeah, so am I. You've become so famous since we first met when I read your, I believe it was your first book, the one about the ATF that should be entitled The ATF's <laughs> Incomprehensible and Totally Amateurish <laughs> Attempts to Infiltrate the Hells right. Angels. I thought it was going to be a book like in praise of their sophistication and intelligent decision making. <laughs> Boy, was I mistaken. Uh, great book. I really enjoyed it. Not only do you write great true crime books, but you're also a defense attorney, which is smart because you can find clients. Yeah, that's no joke, actually. You know, I do get a lot of clients that way. They yeah. actually read my stuff, you know? I mean, I think Running with the Devil was, like, mandatory reading in yeah. some of my my uh, client cells. Yeah. It passed around. <laughs> yeah. but, what, not, what not to do in an infiltration. Yeah. but that Well, that really would be a good learning curve for the ATF, for your book. Well, what's the, what's the one with the three trials and the Excedrin headache number 840? That was Headshot. That's headshot. where... They had three missed trials and a judge threw a fit in the courtroom and stormed out. Yeah, that that, that oh particular God. item uh, has a tremendous wealth of information on how not to conduct a prosecution. Yes. Prosecutorial Misconduct oh. Award for the year. Do you look forward to or do you resent prosecutorial misconduct? Wow, well, do I look forward to it? No, I wouldn't say I look forward to it. I um, I think it's it's apparent in most of the cases that I've looked at, you know, because I do a lot of appellate work now, so that's kind of one of the red flags that I look for. And I see it, of course, writing true crime, you know, where you see all the, oh, the courtroom yeah. shenanigans that go on. On your latest book, James Holmes, The yeah. Movie Theater Massacre uh -huh. and the Psychiatrist Who Treated Him. That must have been one hell of a book to research. It was. It took two and a half years of my life Boy. to research it and to get into the mind of... Oh, no. You know. I'm not taking you to the movies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ever going to the movies again. Yeah, it was pretty disturbing to research it and write it. You know, I had to take it from two different points of view. So I was in the mind of James Holmes for half of it. Well, that and must have been exciting. In, yeah, and then I was first person in the mind of the psychiatrist, you know, the last uh, few weeks before he committed the massacre. So it's really fascinating to... Well, to that's kind of what I pathology. find so interesting. He's seeing this guy before he snaps. I mean, he's already snapped to a certain degree, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually a woman. And she saw him um, for six weeks prior to him committing the murder. And the crazy part about it is the, the psychiatrist is an expert on mass shootings. Oh. I mean, that's what she taught in, you know, uh, as a... Class or her, her fourth-year residence that, you know. And so that's what... You know, when she got James Holmes, she knew immediately that there was something off about him, but she couldn't ever quite figure out what 
you know, what he had or what was wrong with him. And so the thesis of the whole book is that he was somebody who was inherently evil. And so yeah, she I don't know if that works. Oh, okay. <laughs> she okay. couldn't lock him up or, you know... She I mean, couldn't find any loophole. Like, I mean, if she'd go find a prosecutor, they could get her some prosecutorial misconduct tip. To get, get well, away. you know, the, it's, then this, this is the one... I mean, the prosecution actually supported her in this, which is interesting. You know, I mean, they came up with the same conclusion. I mean, James Holmes had so many experts evaluating him and, and you know, the defense, of course, was insanity. And it just—I well, mean, yeah, it, well, it just, as, as an attorney, you know that it was about one percent of defense arguments are insanity, and the prosecution always goes along with it. That's the only time you get it. It's not one of the things like right. you see on TV where you know we're going to say he's crazy. No, you won't. It's like he's obviously nuts. Right. It was the only play he had. Right. I mean, that's the only thing he could say was that he was crazy because clearly what he did was crazy. Yeah, normal and, healthy people aren't uh, well known for. Shooting seventy-two people. Uh, no, they're, right. they're the ones that get away with it. Just the ones that get away. Right. With it. <laughs> uh, I know. I've been it for weeks. How did you get involved in this story? You know, I it's purely by accident. I I happened to be talking to my agent about another book, and she said, "Hey, there's been this really interesting book that's come up. You know, interesting idea that's come across my desk." Would you be interested in writing it? Oh. So it was it was literally a gift that fell into my lap, and I then embarked on this incredible odyssey of, you know, researching everything that happened to him and getting into his head, and and then learning all of the, you know, pathology, and it, it was literally like reviewing. It was a trial of the experts, really, and so the whole book was researching all of that. And so what did you what did you learn about this guy? What is there any incident or a series of incidents or medical damage or anything that would account for she knew when he walked in the, when the door she knew this guy you know was well she had a sense about him she had a sense that that there was something really off about him but she couldn't quite you know figure out exactly what it was but um the scary part about this book is that there isn't an answer you know, there is, I mean, James Holmes wrote a journal, he kept a journal, and in his journal, one of the last few pages of his journal, he writes one word, and the word is why. And and the and the word is small to begin with, and it gets larger and larger as the pages turn. So the very last page is this giant why. And so his whole motive for doing this was he had this theory that people were human capital. And so, and they all had a value. And so the more people he killed, the more capital he would achieve. And that was his theory. And so he thought about killing the way that he thought about broccoli. Like there wasn't any difference really between, between the two. So he didn't really have any feelings for the people that he killed. And so the, the thing about the book that's kind of scary is there isn't one thing that you can pinpoint that would say that was the turning point. That's the reason he went and you know shot up, shot up a movie theater, and and that's actually pretty true for a lot of the mass shooters that I researched, which is kind of a scary thought because there isn't a way to spot them. Mm. You know, um, there aren't like patterns and characteristics that they that they each possess that you'd be able to stop them in the future. A lot of them do it just sort of in secret. I mean, he gathered an arsenal in secret. Um, 
and he just, you know, and that's the other thing that the book really talks about is how easy it is to get weapons. I mean, he would just order weapons online. Oh, yeah. You know, from, they would arrive, and, you know, and, and nobody was questioning anything. Sometimes he walked into, um, you know, like the equivalent of a Bass Pro Shop and, you know, walk out with a rifle or things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, it, so the book really looks at that, too. It looks at not only what, what was his pathology and his mindset at the time. I mean, his whole goal was to survive the shooting, which was also very unusual for mass shooters. Yeah, usually they want to go down with the ship, so to speak. Yeah. He yeah. really wanted people to study his brain. And there and there were many people that believed he had gone into the neuroscience program to study his own brain because he knew something was off about himself. So, you know, so, I mean, he got his wish. People definitely studied him and continue to study his mindset to try to get answers. But... Um, yeah, there isn't a whole lot that we can come away with. You know, that we uh, what was his upbringing? Do. Was there anything unusual about that? Did you know they do anything to change the wiring in his brain? I mean, he's, you know, you stick a screwdriver in a light socket or something? No, I mean that's that's the the kind of the creepy part of it. You know, there really isn't anything. He came from a good family. You know, um, his parents were were really intelligent and you know employed and really you know, lucrative, good professions. And so, I mean, he was very, he grew up in a pretty nurturing family. So there isn't really anything that, that you could really pinpoint, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, his parents were not divorced. They had some mental illness in the family. And that was one of the things that they tried to, you know, pinpoint, Mm -hmm. well, it must be because an uncle had, you know, X, Y, Z illness. This is Mm -hmm. the reason that he had it, but there really wasn't any type of, linear thing they couldn't point to in his past that that made him this way so then it brings up the whole theory you know are there people that are born evil you know do they have um things that happen in their life traumas that happen in their life that make them turn i mean that that really is what is posed in the book you know what yeah because i've seen that i've read about that several times people who have horrifying lives I forget which was Richard uh, Matthew Clark, who uh, yeah, uh, he is. He was very close to his mother. His mother dies in a traffic accident. All the kids are split up. He goes to live with an aunt, and the first thing she says to him is because he cries. He couldn't cry about the death of his mother until he got to the aunt's house, and then he breaks down in tears. And she says, "Don't ask me to be your mother. I already have kids of my own." Wow. And from that, yeah, he stopped crying, and from that moment on, no emotion. If he had any, it was totally drowned in alcohol and drugs. And that was it. I mean, that was the turning point right there. But with this guy, you don't have a turning point. No, there isn't a turning point, and that's what was so baffling. I mean, that's sort of what some of the, you know, the hot points that, you know, a psychiatrist would look for. Is, is there rage? Is there underlying rage about something, you know, disease? hate women does he like you know is there something that you can pinpoint in his past that that would lead him to this place and there wasn't you know and she the other thing is you know was he bullied um you know i mean those are some of the the hallmarks that would lead somebody into that that kind of massacre but there wasn't anything like that in Holmes' life and and the weird thing they they tried to pin it on he had a a girlfriend for you know about five minutes in mm-hmm. grad school and he had just broken up with his girlfriend, and so they were trying to find some kind of connection between the breakup and his what they 
was would term, you know, what some of the experts termed a psychotic break. And they couldn't even really pinpoint that because he didn't seem to have any type of emotion toward that. Um, they described him as very robotic. He was kind of a, almost like a machine, like a system himself, mm-hmm. like he was a human system. <laughs> and so, you know, even the professors all thought he was really strange and disconnected, but they would kind of dismiss that and say, well, you know, he's in the neuroscience program. Everybody in the in this graduate program is strange, you know. So yeah. they didn't necessarily stand out. The very fact that there so, were students in that class was an indication there was something wrong with them. That's a, right, how reassuring right. for the professor. <laughs> Not necessarily. I know, right? But, yeah. but nobody, but he sort of repels people. I mean, so, I mean, I talk about that, you know, with like, is he really like, like the bad seed, you know, like Rhoda Penmark. He was yeah. the real bad seed, you know. Well, he would have been hit by lightning by now. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. I mean, I don't, I'm sure you've, you've contemplated that or come across that in, in the books that you write. You know, mm-hmm. is, is there such a thing as, you know, natural born evil or do they, you know, are they made? So, well, as you know, there, there is a website of uh, for sociopaths by sociopaths. Now, admittedly, not all sociopaths are homicidal, but some of them do become homicidal. And going on that website, uh, they critiqued one of my short stories where someone had mental illness in the story. They said it was, wasn't accurate. I said, well, thank you very much for that vote of confidence. Oh, my God. But uh, so I was reading some of the uh, comments, and one of the individuals said, uh, which validated the theory that if you could get them by the time they're 14, before that, you could affect their behavior, but after that, you usually can't. So it's very simple. He says, being as I'm a sociopath, I only think about myself. I don't care about anybody else. I have no feelings for them whatsoever. However, I have learned that if I do weird stuff to them because I don't care, it will impact my life and I won't be as happy. It'll rebound on me. So purely out of self-protection and purely out of selfishness, I don't hurt other people. Fascinating. Interesting. That's interesting. I was not familiar with that website, but I have seen things... um, Maybe it's the same thing, uh, interview interview with a sociopath, mm-hmm. where they actually will answer questions about who they are and why they do the things they do, which is kind of interesting in and of itself because, you know, I wasn't aware that sociopaths know that they're sociopaths. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's a great deal of self-awareness because it's the only self they care about. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, they're yeah. thrilled. Um, what was it, Dr. Robert Harris, the largest... Uh, a grouping or aggregation of uh, sociopaths in his lifetime that he knew of was the Vancouver Stock Exchange before it was regulated. Oh my God, is that is that true? Yes, oh yes. So wow. every sociopath looking to rip somebody off was on the Vancouver Stock Exchange, and then they asked why they had regulated because it, it was just too it was out there. I mean, it was just everyone's getting ripping off everybody else. What did you come away from this experience of, of writing this book? You just got to never go to the movies and never become a psychiatrist. What else did you learn from that? <laughs> um, well, you know, it, it was probably the most, I would have to say it's the most difficult book that, that I've written. I, it kind of, you know, and what I was writing about it really from all the trauma that the psychiatrist faced because she was publicly outed as a result of this case and she was, you know, she received death threats. She was just haunted by this, this, you know, horrific 
massacre. Her whole life was so irrevocably changed by it. And I, and as I was writing it, I thought about that that whole ripple effect. Mm-hmm. You know that it really does sort of. You know, nobody come walks away from that unscathed, including the writer. Yes. And so, yes, you know, I was so warned I really... about that. <laughs> I was warned by yeah. Gary C. King. Uh, first true crime book I ever read was by Gary C. King, and uh, mm-hmm. when I told him I was writing a, a, a that Kensington had uh, commissioned me to to write Murder in the Family about the horrible case up in Alaska. He said, I've got to tell you, I got to, anybody talks about what you're going to have to deal with. I said, no. <laughs> so he said, be prepared to cry a lot. Be prepared to be haunted. All these negative things that I was going to experience in my life from writing just this one book. And that he was right. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know other true crime writers who died from uh, Lowell Caulfield, a great writer. Uh, never again. The uh, final one he did, that was too much. Pushed him over the over the line. He's not going back again. Not going to put himself through it. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot of fallout. And I never, I don't think I really stopped to think about it too much, you know, writing the other books that I wrote. But this one, this one seemed to really hit home for me. And it's, and it still has a ripple effect. You know, I probably, I mean, I, I had nightmares over it. I mean, I would, I would think and obsess over, mm-hmm. you know, what happened not only to the psychiatrist, but also to, you know, the fallout, like Holmes' family and all of his, I mean, it was just, and I, yeah, it does. It reminded me a little bit of like, you know, people that work on, it's a weird analogy, but people that work on the, the set of horror films, you know, yeah. oftentimes have horrible things happen to them. Yeah. <laughs> and it just, it felt like that, you know, and, and this was the first book that I, it was hard for me to kind of get away from that, that energy. It's a different, that. yeah, it's a totally different energy than writing a book about, uh, well, say like the Hells Angels book about the ATF's incompetence. You came up, you know, you could come away with yeah. dreams of incompetence. You know, I, I, find, yeah. I find this interesting. Um, we've had uh, many, many stories that <clears throat> what happened to the victims was so horrific, was so deplorable. Uh, that just hearing about it, well, you know, makes you shiver. Here, this mm-hmm. man walks into a theater and shoots people. He's not, he's not, you know, cutting them up and having them for dinner. So I find it interesting that this one really bothered you and some of the other material, the, the actual crimes were a thousand times mm-hmm. more awful, more horrific. But she wasn't writing about those. <laughs> There's a difference. It, it is weird, though. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, well, honestly, I was surprised, too. I was very surprised. In fact, I had a really, really hard time writing the trial scene. More than the, the murders themselves, it was the trial that I had such a difficult time writing. It took me weeks to write just the, the last few, you know, trial scenes because I would find myself getting so moved by the testimony and just, I mean... Yeah, it was very hard to shake that. And then I had that whole thing about, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to exploit or sensationalize what these people mm-hmm. went through, you know, and at the same time, I need to be true to what the, the testimony was. It was just, it was horrific. I mean, this crime affected, it impacted the the first responders, you know, the the prosecutor, everybody was, was affected by it. And I, and I, you know, and having come from defense and having done capital work, I mean, I've never really been, it sounds really crazy, but I've never really been 
that moved or affected by the clients that I've represented or the trials that I've sat through. I mean, they've been horrific crimes. They've been, you know, definitely horrible things, but I've never been as affected by those cases as I was by writing the James Holmes story. And I, and I don't know what the difference is for me other than I'm kind of, I was sort of like a, I don't know, like a witness to it all. You know, you're kind of writing it, you're immersed in it, you're, you're thinking their thoughts and, um, and maybe that was the difference, but I had a lot of object, objectivity and distance while I was a defense lawyer. But, you know, I had to actually kind of get into the heads of Holmes defense lawyers who were also really wrecked by this case. Yeah. <laughs> and I, you know, and I had to think about it like that. I mean, I've never really had a, I've had some high profile cases before, but never to the extent where, you know, I mean, this was a public trial with all on television, you know, I mean, everybody knew about this case. So, I mean, I, I just can't imagine what all of these people went through and what the fallout is. I mean, they still... Um, well, the people who were paralyzed for life are still paralyzed for life. The people who were brain damaged yeah. are still brain damaged. It's awful. It's horrific. Yeah, it's, it just raises so many interesting questions, you know, about how you deal with that. I mean, how first responders deal with that, how, you know, how people, you know, what happens to the movies. And, you know, the ironic thing is, I mean, here we are in the age of, you know, COVID or kind of post-COVID where people are not going to the movies very much anymore. But, you know, I, when I go to the movies, I've been to the movies very infrequently since they reopened. And I, you know, I sit in the theater now and I kind of, you know, feel a little bit uncomfortable. Like, you know, it's like a weird sort of sensation of like, wow, you can really sense how helpless they must have felt. And plus, they don't know where it's coming from. If you're in a dark movie theater and you're watching whatever is up on the screen. And then initial, you know, initial reaction might be, well, it's up on the screen. It's part yeah. of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, really, it's And the other, one of the fascinating things about this, you know, I always, I always marvel at how um, truth is stranger than fiction sometimes, but one of Holmes' victims was a two-time survivor of a mass shooting. Oh, my God. Crazy to me. Yeah, she was, um, she was in a mass shooting a month before she was in the theater where she was ultimately murdered, and she was in a mall where it was shot up by some, you know, crazy shooter and escaped that. So, you know, it just, it just makes So it's all her fault, then, if she would have had herself killed with the other one. <laughs> All these other people be okay. Uh, no. Isn't that no. weird? I know it's such has weird little details like that that are just kind of astonishing to me. But yeah, I mean, you know, in hindsight, you just wonder like what was going through her mind, you know, before she walked into decided to go to that midnight showing. And the other really strange kind of fact is stranger than fiction. Um, I remember that night, my my boys went to that triple feature obviously not in Aurora, but, you know, in, in Arizona. And I remember that night so vividly, you know, and, and waking up the next day and, and hearing about it. And, you know, it's just, it's just strange how, how life happens that way. You know, where, you know, years later I'd be writing that story. Hmm. Yeah. You never know. <laughs> well, maybe you do. You and it's suppressed. <laughs> you know, the information is presaged somewhere in your, Electrical circuitry waiting to rise, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. So I've been I've been very fortunate though in in my career. I haven't 
I haven't really had to go seek out a lot of stories. I mean, they've mostly come to me, which is... Oh, awesome. yeah. Well, that's pretty much the same with, uh, I think, all of us that uh, labor in the vineyard of true crime and get yeah, sour grapes. Uh, in fact, what I would submit to... Uh, I had a great editor at Kensington, Karen Haas, who's retired now. I tried to hire her individually because she was so good. She said, no, I, I hung up my blue pencil. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, one of those two. She was great. Uh, I would just submit. I would find the stories where people would call me up. Well, the, the one where Frank uh, Gerardo and I are doing right now was brought to us by a former street working uh, lady. Uh, she was a teenager on the streets of Hollywood. And... Uh, she brought us this incredible true crime story that has never been written about because in, from all our research, the innocent person is in jail and the guilty people yeah. are out walking around. Uh, it's just absolutely one of the strangest true crime stories that I've come across. And we started researching it, and Frank does a fabulous job on that. And it took us out of the little area of Los Angeles where the murder takes place all the way to the President of the United States, Robert Vesco and his uh, investment scams, gasoline tax fraud, uh, Brighton Beach, all sorts of strange things to come back around to two homeless kids and a dead body in a house in Los Angeles. Wow. And it's just, everything just condemned. So you can try this trick sometime in the introduction to the book. I say, you're probably going to ask yourself while you're reading this, what the hell does this story have to do with the murder? And the answer is, trust us. <laughs> Just trust wow. us. Just, because it goes off on seemingly unrelated... Tangents. Yeah, but they all are connected. And that's the weird thing about life, is that all this stuff is connected somehow. Maybe not in terms of cause, but in terms of effect or shuffling around of acquaintances. If this hadn't happened, you wouldn't have met this person. If you hadn't met that person, you wouldn't have married him, right? I mean, it's right. all... absolutely. And so it's... I don't know if... Uh, one uh, editor in reading uh, Capture the Saint said, it's too literary. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is a novel. <laughs> yeah, tell that to Stein. <laughs> yeah, it's too literary. Can you dumb? Uh, so can you uh, make it more reader friendly or something? Oh, you mean dumb it down? Yeah. Oh my God. So I said, okay. So I wrote the same oh. paragraph three different ways and had them choose which style they liked the best. It was oh one with spot and fluff. Seize <laughs> 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 spot, oh, no, run, run, Saint, run. <laughs> Oh my God! See spot. Wasn't that bad? But, yeah, but no, that's how things have changed, as Bob Dylan would say. Uh, yeah, I wish he wouldn't. <laughs> it is interesting, though. Like you're right, how everything sort of like they all are connected. Everything is connected. I mean, I can say that about um, the biker books. Every one of my biker books has a connection to the other, which mm -hmm. is really bizarre. You know, like like Jay Dobbins appeared in Running with the Devil. And then he winds up being the lead for the detective in a socialite scorn, and that's how they catch the two killers there. You know, mm -hmm. then the the guy in the pagan book reads Running with the Devil, and that's how I write his story. <laughs> and yeah. the Vago See, now guy, you're part you know, of the story I mean, by like... this point. <laughs> See, the fact that he got a hold of you to write his story 
puts you in the story. Yeah, it's great. It's really, it's just fascinating. I know. Sure, it's a story about that. Yeah. <laughs> so it's so if I write a, a book about your life as you know, uh, motorcycle girl of the year, whatever your big award is. <laughs> then, uh, that I'd have to mention all these interconnections. That that's why they say yeah, the the, uh, the temptations of any religious body or theological organization faces two tests or two temptations: exclusivity and finality. Mm. That they're the only ones who have it, and nothing comes after them. And those <laughs> are the, those are the two vicious temptations. And see how many fall into that. <laughs> Well, I've mentioned this many times on the show. Uh, I I ascribe to the sheep wolf analogy of uh, personality, human personalities. There are majority of people are sheep, and they follow. And there's a mm-hmm. handful of wolves that eat, eat them. the sheep. <laughs> they eat the sheep. Yes. Well, you, you know, James Holmes um, referred to people as sheeple. You know, I mean, and it, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Unfortunately, there's many other uh, equivalents, the same concept of leaders and followers. Yeah, but, well, there's know. always going to be someone who thinks that they're going to get away with something by taking advantage of others. You ever know anybody to really get away? You ever see anybody driving a Brinks truck out to the funeral? We parlor? do. We do, Burl. <laughs> you're, you're right. You're, you're new, one of your new books is, is going to describe uh, an individual who who left the 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 criminal biz and got away. Well, he did. Well, he actually went to prison. His father, however, got That's away with everything. About. Yeah, his dad. Yeah, his dad. Mr. Stan, the world's mm-hmm. greatest gentleman thief. And probably he got away with everything because he never hurt anybody. Uh, you were approached for this book. Uh, you got in contact with uh, James's psychiatrist, Dr. Lynn Fenton. So how did that relationship go and what did you find fascinating talking to her? Um, you know, it was... It was a really interesting, um, it was an interesting relationship. I mean, we're, we're actually really good friends now. And it took about two years of just kind of diving into it. And I was always concerned or, you know, worried that talking about the crime and, and rehashing her, her time with Holmes was going to re-trigger her or, you know, cause some kind of PTSD. But she's, a, she's an amazingly resilient person who I think was exactly the right person to have been treating Holmes. You know, I mean, I, I don't know that somebody else would have handled it the way that she handled it. I mean, not only did she have to deal with Holmes, who was, you know, creepy and in his own right, but also threatening, um, but then she had to deal with all the aftermath. And that's really what the stories about more than Holmes pathology and, you know, and, and how he became the mass murderer that he was, but it was really her story and how she dealt with all the death threats and being the only psychiatrist in the history of psychiatrists to be publicly outed the way that she was. I mean, she went into hiding. She had to have a disguise for a while. You know, she, uh, wearing glasses ruined, glasses or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It totally ruined her life. And, you know, but I, I think it's really a testament to her resilience in, you know, I mean, she, you know, she went into psychiatry for the love of it. She had already had one medical degree. <laughs> she went into, this is like her second residency. So that in itself was extraordinary. So, but I think, you know, 
I, I took my time with her getting to know her really, because I, I really thought this was a story that she's not just going to trust me, you know, outright and tell me everything personal about her life. And so it really took a lot of trust building and, um, she had to have confidence in me. She didn't know me from Adam, you know, and I started writing this, the story. So I think it was really just a process of many hours of talking and, um, you know, just getting to know her as a person. And, and so I think, you know, so now we're, we're friends and I feel like I really know everything that she went through. <laughs> and so by doing that, I feel like I relived it. You know, I, I kind of, uh, um, felt a lot of that. I guess, I mean, it was really terror, I think, from her perspective, you know, just not even being able to walk outside her front door without getting mobbed, of mobbed you know, by the press. Well, the say it, uh, as we treat crime writers often say, death threats just tell you you're on the right track. Wow. Right. <laughs> I know, right? It comes with the territory. Yeah, and it's so strange. It's no, like no we, almost, we don't take it seriously, although it could be very, very serious. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, the potential is always there. I mean, there's all kinds of nut jobs out there. And, and the, the scary thing is you never know where they're coming from. No, because like they're crazy. You know. yeah. 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 How long did she did, was she treating him before he, he went on his rampage? Um, it was about six weeks. It wasn't that's, very long that's at all. not very long at all. No. Well, he could blame it all on her. Well, no, I, I find <laughs> it fascinating, you know, that you, you think that someone could... Take someone with you know, without the emotion chip. Uh, right. You know, I call it the uh, um, Pink Floyd Nirvana, comfortably numb. Comfortably numb. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could cure somebody in six weeks. I mean, there's what you know. You could, you know, but people aren't thinking rationally, and there's always right. the you know, just like uh, terminal cancer, you know, people may not be fixable. Right. Exactly. Some people are just not. And, right. you know, and I think it's, I think that's really, I mean, that is a question that I think, you know, she, she certainly raised with, you know, her colleagues. I mean, what do you do with somebody who just either doesn't want the treatment, is non-responsive to it, or just can't be treated? Now, was he there and of his own volition? He was, um, he went to a social worker initially, and the social worker is the one that referred him to um, Dr. Fenton, and he was referred because, you know, it was couched and he had a severe anxiety issue. And the reason that he was referred is because he couldn't do presentations as part of his graduate program. He couldn't stand up in front of a group of people and talk about, you know, his experiments. And so he was in danger of not being able to continue in the graduate program. I mean, it would take him sometimes an entire day to come up with a 10-minute presentation. So this created tremendous debilitating anxiety in him and that's, you know, what ultimately wound up being a referral to Dr. So, so he's there for her to help him get over his his anxiety uh, and be able right. to present in front of people. Gee, when I was a child, uh, there was Toastmasters. <laughs> you ever heard of it? Yes. Yeah, my father was a member, and I get dragged along, and I'd have to get up and give a speech. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm seven. Mm -hmm. What the hell do you want me to talk about? My latest toy. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> but the the whole idea there was to go up, give your speech, get your feedback, 
you're in a group where everyone is going through the same thing. It's supposed to help alleviate the anxiety. You know, instead of right. instead of uh, presenting in front of peers that aren't necessarily going to be kind. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's breaking the ice. Yeah, so he walks in, she goes, oh my God, this guy is more than just anxious. <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. I mean, he walks in and he he his gait is very strange. She describes him sitting in her waiting area looking like, almost like a dead body in her waiting area. <laughs> like he's just really stiff, like not... Not like a person, not like anybody that she's ever seen before. So just in his presentation, it's different. And then when she gets him into her office, he, his gaze, is, she describes it as almost somebody like looking through you. You know, like a, a very, like a bug-eyed stare, almost like a non-person. So, you know, she tried to have a conversation with him and there wasn't... It was like having a conversation with a with a husk of a person. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> What's the name of your book going to be? Aurora. Um, it's Aurora. Jane Holmes and the Colorado Movie Massacre and the Psychiatrist Who Treated Him. And, and there's uh, pictures in it, it too. There's a picture of him, and he's got a weird look on his face, like someone took my brain. Yeah. <laughs> when is when is your book out? Is it it's up? out July 2022, but it's out right now for pre-orders. On Excellent. Yeah, well, pre-order several for me, uh, Mark, and pay for them. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> Make great holiday gifts to cheer people up. Uh, thank Thanks. you so much, Carrie, for coming back on the show. And watch out for thank those you. trucks, thank okay? Thank you for having me. I'll have you again as soon as you write another book. <laughs> All right. Bye. Hey, Pearl. Yeah. What's next? Uh, Magic Man Out on the Demons of Decadence Live in the Lights of Lounge at AlloRadioLive.com.